Today I'm going to be meditating on the story of Job. So um, this one I think is one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible and I think there's a number of reasons for that. So if you've been listening to any of my retellings for a while, the first, so I, I ended up compiling the first set into a book called Messiah Biblical Retellings and I'll link in the show notes to that and then the second set is a a series of stories from women in the Bible and the way I'm setting them up is in the books I always do the retelling first then my afterword that kind of explains why I did what I did in the retellings and then the actual scriptures themselves so this one is going to appear in the book I'm working on now which is called covenants or will be called covenants and essentially it's kind of looking at all of the really difficult stories, or most of them, that um, from the Old Testament that tend to trip a lot of people up thinking that God is different in the Old Testament versus the New. And it seems like that's one of the things that people say most often, that it seems like the God of the Old Testament is harsh and judgmental, and yet the God of the New Testament is loving. Did he change? Is he schizophrenic? And the answer is no. The way that you reconcile those things is by understanding what covenants God was dealing with and what were kind of the rules that were set in place under those particular circumstances. And I think that's really key to understanding the book of Job. So um, these, the the, the retelling that I'm going to do is going to encompass the entire book of Job, which is all 42 chapters. But I think in order to really have the foundation of it, we need to read at least the first couple of chapters, and then uh, chapter 38, and which is where God finally steps in and starts talking back to Job, and then chapter 42, where there's restoration at the very end. So this is going to be kind of a long retelling, and also, just so you're uh, ready for it, the retelling is going to be from Satan's perspective, which I thought was the most useful. Okay, so here is the the actual scriptures first, then I'll read the afterword, and then I'll go into the retelling. So Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz, or Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, and all around all his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking while... 
drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came, also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. And this is chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered to the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard all of this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted up their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great." Okay, so then from that point forward, there's a whole lot of talking. So uh, up until this point, we were told that Job didn't sin in anything that he said. Then all the friends start talking after the seven days, and they start basically accusing him of wrongdoing, and then Job justifies himself and basically says that God's unjust. Now, in chapter 32, this is where God steps in. No, actually, sorry. This is where Elihu steps in first. So Elihu is the fourth friend who's apparently been there the whole time and was listening, and now he can't take it anymore, so he speaks up in defense of God. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzite, and the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer, Answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, son of Bereshel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore I was afraid, and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, Age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. 
but there is a spirit in man, and breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me, I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words, I listened to your reasonings, while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words, lest you say we have found wisdom. God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. And I have waited because they also did because they did not speak, because they stood still and answered no more. I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Okay, so from that point forward, uh, he ends up defending God and saying, how dare you say that you're more righteous than the Lord? Maybe we don't understand what's happening, but I guarantee God is righteous and you are not in comparison because for a lot of this, this period of time, Job was justifying himself saying, I did absolutely nothing to deserve all of this. Okay. And then God himself ends up coming to to Job in uh, chapter 38. And he says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens a counsel by words without knowledge. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness swaddling band. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and skip down because that's essentially the whole argument. God's argument back is, I'm much bigger than you. I know more than you. Shut up, more or less. Um, and then in chapter 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I therefore abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And um, so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And, and so as you read what they were saying, they essentially were saying that Job must have brought all this upon himself by doing something unrighteous, and this made God mad. So he says Job was 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 more righteous at the beginning when he refused to do that, but then later he ended up saying, oh, I'm better than God. Uh, now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hepuk. In in all the land there were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. 
and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. Okay, so before I get into the retelling, I put the story of Job in a book about covenants, as I mentioned, that that's kind of where it's going to fit, even though God never makes a covenant with Job, because I believe the only way to, to properly interpret the events in the story is within the context of the covenants that did and did not exist at the time. Most scholars place the story of Job after the flood and before Abraham's covenant with God in Genesis 12. This means that the only covenant Job had with God are those of Adam and Noah. When Adam sinned and obeyed Satan, God was left on the outside of the world he had made looking in like a landlord whose tenants had turned him out. Satan was now the god, little g, of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that. And when while God had promised to bring the promised seed of Eve, which we're told in the curse, Genesis 3.15, and the, that seed, of course, turns out to be Jesus, he would need a people willing to more or less play by his rules in order to bring Jesus. And then he'd need the cooperation of generations of prophets in order to speak him into existence. And he hadn't gotten that far yet. Job is a righteous man and so clearly favored by God that Satan takes notice. It's actually God's blessings that paint a target on Job's back. While Satan, of course, comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and we're told that by Jesus in John 10.10, in this story, he doesn't do so for the sheer pleasure of it. He does it because he wants to prove his point to God, almost as if in a courtroom drama. He aims to establish that our love for God is contingent upon God's blessings. If Satan can establish this for the most righteous man on earth at the time, it would follow that the same is true for all the rest of us. So in Job 1, God brings up Job to Satan before Satan mentions him, which seems to indicate that it was God who placed Job in Satan's crosshairs. But God is omniscient, and Satan's immediate rejoinder showed that Satan was already thinking about Job. So I suspect God just knew what Satan was thinking and cut to the chase. Many translations of Job have it that God, quote, allowed Satan's attack against Job, which would seem like that it seemed to make God complicit in Job's misery. But the context of the covenants in place at the time indicates that God allowed it only in the loosest sense of the word. Job lived at a time when God had not yet established a reciprocal covenantal protection for his people. God had to allow Satan's request, even though he hated it. Did he have the power to refuse Satan? Technically, yes, but he didn't, did not have the authority to do so because he'd given that authority to man in the garden, and man, in turn, had given it to Satan. So at that point, Satan became the god of the world, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 again, and he also became the prince of the power of the air, which was Ephesians 2.2. 2. So by nature, all of Adam's descendants were therefore slaves of Satan. We know that from Ephesians 2.3. So legally, Satan had the authority to do what he asked to do to Job. Had God refused, he would have violated the integrity of his own word. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is the integrity of God's word that holds the very universe together. That's Hebrews 1.3. So while in Job 2.3, God said to Satan, you moved me against him, God only moved against Job in the sense that he withdrew the hedge of protection that we're told about in Job 1.10, that he said that he'd placed around Job when Satan complained about it. Ecclesiastes 10. And 8 says, Whoso breaks a hedge, a serpent will bite him. So even without, without the hedge, the serpent had direct access to bite. So that's the way in which that was meant. Satan's challenge put God in a really difficult position. Satan, which means adversary in Hebrew, is only mentioned by name 18 times in the Old Testament, 14 of which are in the book of Job. He isn't even mentioned as Satan in Genesis, maybe because he wasn't the adversary yet, because that was the story of how he became the adversary, or in Isaiah 14, where the story of his fall appears, and there he's called Lucifer, which means light bringer, which was his angelic name. 
As mentioned in the story, I suspect that God didn't did not warn mankind about Satan and his angels because there was nothing they could have done about them at this point in history anyway. Why tell someone they have a terrible bloodthirsty enemy if they're powerless to avoid him? Would that not only produce terrible fear and paranoia with no benefit? Yet because Job had no doctrine of Satan, that meant he had no context to explain his tragedy. He and his three friends believed calamity was a punishment for evil, which sometimes it is, according to the writers of Proverbs and Psalms. But since Job knew that he had done nothing specifically wrong to warrant all of this, the only logical alternative in his paradigm was that God did this to him unjustly. Satan was counting on this, and he was counting on Job to curse God because of it, even though God was innocent. In Genesis, Satan essentially told Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them, that he didn't truly love them. Job was the story of Satan doing the same thing to God. He was telling God that Job didn't truly love him. The adversary was busily trying to convince each side that they weren't loved. It isn't until the fourth friend, Elihu, finally speaks in Job 32 that Job and the reader learns that there's a third option. Andrew Womack argues that Elihu was actually the writer of the book of Job because the rest of the book is written in third person until Elihu begins to speak in Job 32:15 when he transitions to the first person. This is important for context because it tells us which chapters we can rely on upon, rely upon as divinely inspired and which ones are mere opinions of the speaker. God later rebukes most of what Job and his three friends say, so that leaves only only Job 1, 2, and 32 through 42 as accurate theological representations, at least of what was happening at the time. Elihu informs Job in Job 33:12 that Job is not righteous. From the perspective of the new covenant, we understand that there is none righteous, no, not one, and Paul said that in Romans 3:10. While Job's specific sin may not have occasioned this attack, the general sin of Adam, the covenant head of mankind, had rendered all of mankind unrighteous. But then comes the bombshell verse. Elihu prophesies that God is working to provide the Savior. He says in this is uh, Job 33:23 to 28. He says, "If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him, and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit, for I have found a ransom. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see his life shall see the light. So today, with the benefit of hindsight and the entire Bible, we have some ability to conceptualize what Job went through, but Job himself did not. He couldn't read the first two chapters of Job to learn that he had an enemy who was using him as a pawn to prove a cosmic point. He had no context to understand what God was doing behind the scenes. I think this is why God responded to Job the way that he did, explaining to a man in Job's day about sin and the need for a savior to be born and uh, to be born a man and die as a substitutionary sacrifice for all mankind would have been kind of like trying to explain calculus to an ant. So instead, God's approach was to remind Job of how much bigger he was than Job and how little Job truly understood. Even though we can comprehend God's predicament better than Job could have done at the time, there is still a lot that we don't and can't know. The message God gave to Job to magnify his glory and to trust his greater wisdom when he can't give us direct explanation still applies to us today. So Job's initial responses to his tragedy in chapters 1 and 2 are often quoted by believers today as a godly response because he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job 1.21. And then the writer of the book says, In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. That's Job 1.22. There's a popular worship song that actually quotes this verse and holds it up as an example of how believers should respond to tragedy. But while Job didn't sin in what he said, he was still incorrect. God was not the one who had taken from Job. That was Satan. God did remove the hedge of protection from Job, but only because he had no choice. Job had no covenant, which would have given God a legal excuse to protect him. We do. 
The law of Moses made provision for blessings and protection from the enemy for God's people so long as they followed his law. God warned them that he could not protect them if they ceased to follow his law and uphold their half of the covenant, though. Disobedience would allow Satan access to them in order to steal, kill, and destroy. Again, John 10.10. These blessings and cursings are all laid out in Deuteronomy 28. In most of the Old Testament, there's no distinction between the curses God inflicts and those inflicted by Satan due to God removing the protection of the covenant from his people. But again, I suspect this was because in the Old Testament, there was essentially no doctrine of Satan at all. That's part of why Job is so fascinating. It gives us insight into the real chain of causality in heaven. God was responsible, quote unquote, only insofar as he withdrew his protection and blessing. And he did that much only when his hand was forced. It was never what he wanted to do. He is a good God. Even the curses in the law of Moses don't apply to us anymore today. Jesus followed the law perfectly. He fulfilled it on our behalf. We see that in Matthew 5.17. He became a curse for us, redeeming us from the curse of the law. That's Galatians 3.13. Now, all that's left are the blessings of those who are in Christ Jesus. Accordingly, Satan's name changed from the Old Testament to the New. Satan meant accuser, but in the New Testament, Greek he's referred to as diabolos, which means false accuser. He could legally accuse us to God before Jesus came, but no more. There are no modern-day Job's. God can now protect and bless those of us who who have accepted his new covenant, which was ratified by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that. Even in this time before covenantal protection, it's helpful to place Job's tragedy in context. So Job 3 through 42 takes place all in one day. The whole book covers a little over a week in Job's life. He still lost his children and his servants, which was a lasting tragedy. But after this trial, God restored everything to Job so that he was twice as great as he had been to begin with. That was in Job 42, 10 to 17. He had the same number of children, seven sons and three daughters restored. His daughters were known as beauties throughout the land, Job 42, 15. He lived another 140 years afterwards, and God restored the years the locusts had eaten. We are told that in Joel 2, 2, 25. Um, so just an interesting side note, the, in uh, Job 40 and 41, God talks about the behemoth and the leviathan. So to me, the former, the behemoth, sounds like a herbivorous dinosaur, like a brontosaurus, and we're told that in Job 40, 15 to 24. And the latter, the leviathan, sounds like a mythical dragon. It even breathed fire. We're told that in Job 41, 18 to 21. And that's why, in, so I, I, when I wrote my retelling of Noah and the Flood, which is in that book that, that will eventually come out, um, I had Noah take some of the dinosaurs with him onto the ark in, in my retelling because it looks like according to this, that they survived the flood. And then also, um, particularly in Revelation, Satan is referred to as a dragon. So I decided to give him the idea in my retelling of uh, taking that form as he listened to God wax poetic about how magnificent the dragon was, that creature. Okay, so here is finally my retelling. This was round three, me against God. My first strategy was a raging success. Adam simply handed me his authority on the earth. It was almost too easy. God cursed the serpent for it, but what was that to me? I wasn't the serpent. I'd just borrowed its body for a while. The only part that bothered me was that seed of Eve business. I didn't understand what that meant, but I felt like it was important somehow. Presumably, it required a human descendant of the line of Eve, though, whatever else it meant. So, in round two, using the proverbial carrot of Adam's authority, I enticed a third of God's angel army to follow me to earth. Once glorious beauty had become my, my glo- once glorious beauty had become shriveled and warped since my expulsion from the garden, but they crossed over into earth in all their godlike majesty. The daughters of men were helpless before them, so the earth swelled with their demigod progeny, perpetuating down through the generations until contamination of God's original bloodline was almost complete. 
Until that damn flood. I never saw that coming. Since the floodwaters had receded and repopulation of the earth had commenced, I'd prowled the earth, gnashing my teeth and looking for another opportunity to strike. I corrupted Ham's progeny with my fallen angels once again, but it was half-hearted this time. I already knew God would not allow me to pollute the entire human race with defiled blood, so what was the point? There was some inherent value in corrupting, maiming, and killing those he loved, though, because it hurt him. That was always the real goal. They didn't matter to me one way or the other. I'd have completely ignored them, except for the fact that he loved them. But what I needed now was another masterstroke that would enable me to win the whole human race, not just pick them off one at a time. As I prowled the earth in my own dimension, a curious flaming hedge drew my attention. It would have been strange enough to see a self-perpetuating wall of flame in the earthly dimension, but what in the world could it be doing in mine? I crept up close and tested it with my finger, crying out as it singed my withered flesh. Instinctively, I shoved my fingers in my mouth to tend the burn. Then I peered through the wall as best I could, ignoring the heat and trying to understand its purpose. It reminded me of the two angels God had placed on every side of the Tree of Life with their flaming swords. They, too, were in the spiritual dimension. God clearly sent this, sent this wall, but why? Inside the hedge I saw a man, his household, and the houses of presumably his progeny. The man, whom the servants called Job, seemed middle-aged by the standards of the day, around sixty years old. He also appeared to be fabulously wealthy. I crept around the perimeter of the wall of flame and counted 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a large retinue of servants. He also had grown seven grown sons and three grown daughters, who, I noted, took turns holding feasts in their homes daily for all their other siblings. They indulged themselves and worked very little, as children of wealthy men are wont to do. Their behavior seemed to bother Job, who daily offered ten burnt sacrifices, one for each of his children, after each feast. Huh. I thought to myself, tapping my fingers against my chin and narrowing my eyes as I peered through the hedge. Then a slow smile curled my lips as I understood several things at once. Job was a righteous man. God loved him. God loved all his ridiculous creatures, of course, but he prized Job, because Job loved him back, unlike most of them. Because of this, God had blessed Job hand over fist on every side. The hedge of fire was in my dimension because God was protecting Job from me. But that was illegal. By God's own decree, he gave the earth to Adam and all of Adam's progeny after him. Adam obeyed me, and therefore it was mine. I had the authority to afflict any man I chose, yet God saw fit to use his power to prevent me from doing so. I saw my strategy. God's angels, those who still served him, presented themselves before his throne in heaven daily to receive their assignments. That day, I joined the queue. I went there as little as possible as the sight of heaven's bounty, God's glory, and the beauty of those who still served him made me writhe inwardly. At last I got to the front of the line. Since I had received my new form after my expulsion from the garden, I could no longer look directly at God. He was too radiant. Instead, I was forced to slink forward, bent double, with my head down. It was humiliating. "'From where do you come?' boomed the voice of the one on the throne. "'From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it,' I answered." Even my voice, once so resonant and, now, and lovely, now came out like a snivel, particularly in the massive and spectacular halls of the throne room. I could feel God's penetrating gaze piercing through my thoughts, and though I could not look directly at his face, he already knew exactly why I was here. "'Have you set your heart against my servant Job?' he demanded. Then his voice softened, like a lover waxing poetic about his beloved. "'There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears me and shuns evil.' I sneered. Does Job fear you for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, and have increased in the land. Stretch out your hand and remove the wall of fire, that I might touch all he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. God was silent for a long moment. 
I risked a glance up at him and immediately regretted it as the sight of him seared. Then he heaved a great sigh and said, Behold, all that Job has is already in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. Ha! I gloated, clapping my hands together and vanishing at once. I was eager to get out of heaven anyway. I went straight to Job's estate and laughed and danced when I saw that indeed the hedge of protection was gone. I had free reign. I prowled closer to the home of one of Job's children. It was the middle of the day, and all ten of them were in there eating and drinking like lazy gluttons. I tapped my chin with my fingers, musing how I might go about this. I could personally appear and wipe out everything Job owned, but if Job knew that I was responsible for his misfortune, that would defeat my whole purpose. He would be miserable, yes, but what did I care about that? I wanted Job to blame God for his tragedies and to curse him to his face. I wanted to prove to God that Job only loved him for his gifts, not for himself. So I needed to be crafty. Fortunately, that was my specialty. I roamed a short distance away and found a band of Sabaean warriors. I could always use them to my advantage with a little prompting. They were greedy, vicious, and bored, and I had trained them well to consider plunder and murder as the only antidote to boredom. So I whispered in the ears of the leaders and led them straight to Job's property, where the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. I watched with glee as they stole the animals and relished the screams of Job's servants as the Sabaeans put them to the sword. This wasn't even necessary. The servants feared the Sabaeans and would not have fought them. The Sabaeans slaughtered for the rush of it. It was utterly delicious. I caused the Sabaeans' eyes to pass over one of the servants in the group and whispered into the servant's ear, "'Go and tell your master what you have seen.' It was all the incentive he needed. He ran off in a wild terror, as if I myself ran after him. But would a human raid cause Job to blame God? I mused. No. I needed something more supernatural. Humans called natural disasters acts of God, which I thought was just fantastic. They didn't know who was actually in charge here. Maybe more than one type of disaster, I decided, just in case he might otherwise think it was a coincidence. Even though Job had sheep and camels and more servants, I whispered in the Sabaean chief's ear that they were satisfied, and they rode off with the spoils. Next, I observed the hills where the sheep roamed. I sauntered over to them and spooked them so that they all ran in the direction of the barn where the servants were. I needed them all in one place. Then I snapped my fingers. A bolt of lightning fell from the sky, setting the barn ablaze. The sheep and the servants, who had not been hit or already consumed, began to flee, so I summoned another bolt and another, until only one servant ran helter-skelter down the hill to tell Job what he had witnessed. Perfect, I thought, rubbing my hands together. Job would have to blame God for that. But quite frankly, lightning wasn't as much fun as watching humans murder each other. What was it about murder? Was it the betrayal? That moment of utter hatred in the victim before the slaughter? Hmm. The Sabaeans had already taken off, but the Chaldeans weren't far away. I whispered in their ears that there was a cache of camels nearby, if they would only follow me. The, ser the leader separated his men into three bands to sneak up on the remaining servants. Then, with a war cry, swords drawn, they descended en masse, capturing the beasts and spilling every drop of human blood, save one. Once more, I protected a single servant, who set out at a run for his master to share yet more awful news. So, I mused aloud, all, uh, once all was silent again, Job is a pauper now, and it's not even mid-afternoon. Now, for the last and the best blow... I roamed back to the house where I had seen his gluttonous children. They had all conveniently gathered in the same place. One more act of God, I thought, though not lightning again. I wanted to make very sure Job knew this was intentional. I prowled around the structure, observing its foundations. They weren't particularly strong. A normal storm wouldn't take them out, but if I sent a wind against each wall from all four directions, that should do it. Also, it had the added benefit of peculiarity. Normal wind blew in one direction or another, or at most in a cyclone. A perfect hit on all four sides, though? That could only be God. In Job's mind, at least. 
I called upon three of my demonic allies and stationed one one on each side of the house. With the gust of our mouths, the four walls collapsed, killing the revelers inside, all except one servant. He crept terrified but unharmed from the rubble and ran to his master to tell him of the tragedy. My three demons were too busy cackling with their enjoyment at their destruction to notice my disappearance. I enjoyed the death of Job's children, but I wanted to be there when all four messengers reached Job. I wanted to hear and relish that moment when he cursed God. I appeared, brimful of delighted anticipation, beside the unsuspecting Job right at the moment that the first messenger reached him. Breathless, he burst out. The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaean raided and took them all away, and indeed they have killed all the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. I watched Job eagerly, my grin stretching wide at the look of horror on his face. He barely had time to process this when the second servant arrived. The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. I hooted at his choice of words. The fire of God! Job let out a a cry of anguish and clamped his hand over his mouth. But it wasn't over yet. The third messenger was right on his heels. The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants on the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job groaned and fell to his knees. I danced in place, so eager was I for the master stroke. Here was the fourth messenger. He looked bedraggled, covered with soot from the rubble, and he gasped out, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job gave an indiscernible wail and tore his robe in his grief. He lay there in a heap, weeping for some time. My anticipation waned, and I grew irritated. Curse God, you fool, I whispered in his ear. Come on! My whisper did seem to rouse him, and he staggered to his feet, finding a knife. I raised my eyebrows. This might be interesting. But no, he just used it to shave his head, wailing all the more as he did so. Where his hair fell to the ground, he then knelt and worshipped God. Naked I came from my mother's womb, he whispered, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My jaw hung open. I could hardly process this. I'd succeeded in making Job think God had done this to him, yet he worshipped him anyway? I let out a shriek of fury and ran at Job, prepared to tear him limb from limb. But as I got close, I saw the wall of fire spring forth all around him, the same one I had seen around his property in the beginning. Lay not a hand on his person, God had said. I shrieked again. That's not fair! I raged at the sky. He's mine by right! For the next human day, I rampaged, inflicting wanton destruction on any creatures that came in my path, since I could not afflict the one I truly wished to harm. I could have demanded God remove the hedge around Job's person, but even in my fury, I recognized that killing him would be pointless, satisfying for a moment, but I'd have ultimately lost the challenge. But then, in a sudden stroke of insight, I realized what I'd missed. Aha! I cried aloud and vanished. I reappeared in heaven, doing my best to ignore the envy gnawing at me as I beheld all the beauty I had lost. I was here on a mission. I merged in the queue to enter God's throne room, annoyed that I was forced to wait my turn. "'From where do you come?' God asked when I reached the front of the line. Bent double, not looking at him, I slunk forward, my voice coming out in the whine I hated, from going to and forth on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. God's next words practically radiated with pride. "'Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man, one who fears me and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause.' I snarled, skin for skin. "'Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and remove the hedge from around him. Let me touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face.' The one on the throne heaved a heavy sigh. Behold, he is in your hand. I know he is. Your hedge is illegal. He's mine. 
but spare his life, God added. I was just about to tell God that he had no right to withhold even Job's life from me. He was of the line of Adam, and therefore he was mine if I wanted him, and we both knew it. But I bit my tongue. I reminded myself that taking Job's life would not win me the contest. In fact, it would rather be an admission of defeat. I needed him to live and fester in his misery until he railed against God for his misfortune. Very well, I snivelled and vanished. Job was right where I left him, robe torn, head shaved, mourning on the ground. I crept up as close to him as I had been before when the hedge of fire popped up around him, but there was none. Ha! I gloated and poked Job in the cheek. Where I touched him, a deep, angry red boil appeared. Job gasped at the pain of it, and his hand flew to his cheek. Yes! I cried and implanted my hands all over his body from head to toe. Job cried out in agony, but I afflicted him everywhere, across the backs of his legs and buttocks to the soles of his feet. He could not sit, stand, kneel, sit, or lie down without pain. He would have no relief. Curse him, I taunted Job. Curse God! Job rose to his feet, crying out with each step. His hands, too, were afflicted, but he managed to grab a piece of pottery. It was filled with ashes. He poured them on the ground, and then dashed the pot against the ground where it shattered. He took one of the shards, scraping the boils on his hands and arms to lance the pus and relieve the pressure. This, I knew, would create a new kind of burning pain, particularly as he was now sitting in a heap of ashes. Job scraped and wept, but no curse did he utter. I let out another howl of frustration. But then I turned around and saw Job's wife approaching. I'd forgotten all about her. Her face was tear-stained, but I saw that her expression was hardened. I grinned and slunk up to her. "'Tell Job to curse God,' I whispered. As if it had been her own idea, she, the shrew put her hands on her hips and demanded with scorn, "'Are you still holding fast to your integrity?' Job said nothing, scraping and sniffing in the ash heap. "'He ignores you. How dare he?' I whispered in her ear. "'Job!' she snapped, now shrill. "'Give it up! Curse God and die!' "'Yes!' I crowed, pumping my fists in the air as I watched Job holding my breath." At last, as if in a dream, Job turned his disfigured face to her and managed through infected lips. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? I stared at Job, dumbfounded. No! I shrieked, grabbing fistfuls of my hair. I fell to the ground and began beating it with my fists. When I'd spent my rage, I regrouped. I needed to step up my game. Job had been the greatest of the men in the East, so word of his sudden misfortune spread fast. I made sure word got to three of his friends whom I knew well, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Job respected them and would therefore be likely to listen to them. Yet, while they considered themselves religious, they didn't truly know God at all. Moreover, they were haughty, judgmental, and could not bear contradiction. This made them perfect for my purposes. Within a day of Job's affliction, the three of them connected with each other and, and together made the rest of the journey to his estate, but unfortunately, I could not stop a fourth from joining them from a neighboring city, a much younger man named Elihu. I frowned. I did not like Elihu. I couldn't use him at all. In fact, he might be a problem. But perhaps I could use his humility to get him to keep his mouth shut and let his elders do all the talking. When the four friends saw Job from a distance with his head shaved, robe torn, disfigured with boils, and sitting in a pile of ashes, they all cried out. Is that him? asked Bildad. It can't be, gasped Eliphaz. I hadn't heard he was diseased, too, had you? But when they got close enough to realize it was their friend after all, they tore their robes also. Each of them took the dust at his feet and sprinkled it upon his own head as they came. Tentatively, they approached Job, kneeling in the ashes beside him. "'Tell him this is God's punishment,' I whispered to Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar in turn. "'Tell him he must have committed some great sin to have deserved all this. Tell him!' But they said nothing at all. All four of them sat with Job in silence. For an entire week. Seven days and seven nights. Nothing I could do could entice them to speak. I paced. I whispered. I screamed. I ranted. 
On the seventh day, I shook Job by the shoulders and cried out, Don't you have anything to say? How do you feel about everything that has happened to you? Speak it out, damn you! At long last, the fool opened his mouth. Obliterate the day that I was born. Blank out the night that I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed by the night. He waxed poetic about his misery, which was gratifying at first, but I quickly grew impatient. I made a reeling motion at him with my withered hands as he went on and on about the stars and the grave and the light and all such nonsense. Curse God, come on, I snarled. But he didn't. He finished as he had begun, bemoaning his terrible lot in life, but casting no blame. I looked at the friends and demanded, Are you going to stand for this? He's making it out like he's a victim here. He must be guilty. Tell him so. Eliphaz obliged. Think! Has a truly innocent person ever ended up on the scrap heap? Do genuinely upright people ever lose out in the end? It's my observation that those who plow evil and sow trouble reap evil and trouble. Yes, yes! I clapped my hands, turning Job eagerly. Eliphaz went on. So what a blessing when God steps in and corrects you. Mind you, don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. True, he wounds, but he also dresses the wound. The same hand that hurts you heals you. I got up in Job's face. Are you going to stand for this? Defend yourself. Who's the real villain here? It's not you, so who's left? There's only one possibility. Job replied with yet another long soliloquy of his his own sorrow, but at long last he began to get to the point. Confront me with the truth and I'll shut up. Show me where I've gone off track, he demanded of his friend. You pretend to tell me what's wrong with my life, but treat my words of anguish as so much hot air. God is to blame, I shouted at him, shaking my fists. At long, long last he got there and started to shout up at heaven. What are mortals anyway that you bother with them, that you even give them the time of day, he demanded. Let up on me, will you? Can't you even let me spit in peace? Even even I suppose I'd sinned. How would that hurt you? You're responsible for every human being. Don't you have better things to do than to pick on me? The way things are going, I'll soon be dead. Finally, I roared, triumphant for a moment, until I realized that he had not actually cursed God, though he had blamed him. That was a start. Goad him, I whispered to Bildad next. I was sure that if the others doubled down on blaming Job for his troubles, that Job would eventually do what I wanted in order to clear his own name. But I jabbed a finger in Elihu's face. You stay quiet in the presence of your elders, boy. What followed was a long, exasperating afternoon of high tempers and no actual progress. I succeeded in getting a life as Bildad and Zophar to accuse and even yell in Job's face. Job persisted in swearing to his own innocence and in blaming God, even demanding that God explain himself. Elihu, meanwhile, grew angrier by the minute, and I suspected I wouldn't be able to shut him up forever. But if I could just get Job to curse God before Elihu opened his mouth... Suddenly Job declared, I know that God lives, the one who gives me back my life, and eventually he'll take a stand on earth, and I'll see him, even though I get skinned alive, see God myself with my very own eyes. Oh, how I long for that day. What is wrong with you? I shrieked at him, yanking on the tufts of my hair. Why do you want to see the God responsible for all your misery? The sun rose higher in the sky, peaked, and then began its descent. Just before sunset, Job declared, Oh, if only someone would give me a hearing. I've signed my name to my defense. Let the Almighty One answer. I want to see my indictment in writing. I'm prepared to account for every move I've ever made. At last, Elihu could stand it no more. I'm a young man, and you are all old and experienced. That's why I kept quiet and held back from joining the discussion. I kept thinking, experience will tell. The longer you live, the wiser you become. But I see I was wrong. It's God's spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty One, that makes wise human insight possible. The experts have no corner on wisdom. Getting old doesn't guarantee good sense. So I've decided to speak up. Listen well. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. I swore and hissed, Shut up, shut up, shut up! 
but I knew it was useless. I had no influence over this kid at all. Elihu declared, It's impossible for God to do anything evil. No way can the, Al- can the Mighty One do wrong. He held the floor as sunset streaked across the sky, declaring God's power and majesty, and rebuking Job for asserting his own righteousness at God's expense. I cringed away from him as he finally declared, Mighty God, far beyond our reach, unsurpassable in power and justice. It's unthinkable that he'd treat anyone unfairly. So bow to him in deep reverence, one and all. If you're wise, you'll most certainly worship him. All at once, the progressing sunset grew dark, like a snuffed candle. With it, a sound of blowing wind intensified and condensed into a mighty whirlwind. Uh Uh-oh, I muttered, knowing what the whirlwind portended. I dashed behind a corner of Job's barn. Not that it mattered. I just didn't like standing before God if I could possibly avoid it. All five of the men stared in awe as the whirlwind descended from heaven and then fell on their faces. A burnished orange glow emanated from the inside, and I cringed away as the booming voice sounded from within. "'Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge?' God demanded. "'Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me.' Job managed a tiny squeak, understanding that God addressed him. "'Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth?' God continued, his tone actually sarcastic. I raised my eyebrows at this. I'd never heard God be sarcastic before. I thought I'd invented the technique. "'Tell me, if you have understanding.' Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? I growled under my breath at the reference. All those morning stars he referred to were the angelic chorus, who had been under my direction. I had been their leader, the most talented, most glorious, and most respected of them all. The memory of what I had been still made me gnash my teeth. God continued with the same line of questioning, expounding upon the wonder and majesty of creation while all five men trembled in their pile of ashes. He really drove the point home, starting with the planet, then the animals, and particularly the dragon, already the stuff of human legends. I secretly liked that beast, actually. I like to imagine myself the way God described it to Job. Any hope of overcoming him is false. No one is fierce that he would dare stir him up. With his terrible teeth all around, his sneezings flash forth light. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils, and a flame goes out of his mouth. A dragon, I mused, stroking my pointy chin with my shriveled hands. I might adopt that image, encourage the humans to think of me as a dragon. What a beast to strike terror into the hearts of all who envision it distracted with my own thoughts. I had not noticed that Job was speaking now. I had to creep out from my hiding place to hear his voice. I'm convinced. You can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand, from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll never do that again, I promise. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. I gave a snort of disgust, but then remembered myself and darted back to my hiding place before God could address me directly. God upbraided Job's three pompous friends next and demanded they repent and offer sacrifices for their sins, but I paid little attention to this. I knew what was coming next, and I didn't care to see it. God would forgive them all and restore to Job all I had stolen from him, and probably then some. I vanished into the wilderness and there regrouped with a few of my demons. They watched me with baleful eyes. "'Well, it wasn't a complete failure,' I snapped before they could say anything. "'He didn't renounce God, but he did accuse him of being unjust. "'That's only because Job doesn't know we exist,' Abaddon pointed out. "'I don't know why God didn't just tell him.' 
I shook my head. He can't tell him. He knows if humans understood that nothing restrains us from stealing, killing, and destroying from them, then they'd ha- and they'd have no power to stop us, they'd be consumed with fear and thus useless to him. It'll be just as if we'd already won the war. We could just steal whatever God restores to Job again, Abaddon suggested. I don't care about Job. Job's not the point, I roared. No one spoke for a long moment, and I paced. We were all thinking the same thing, but no one wanted to say it. God made these wretched creatures with free will because he wanted them to love him, to choose him freely for himself and not just what he could give them. I wanted to prove to him that the whole exercise was pointless. They would never love him the way that he wanted them to. So I chose the best, holiest, most righteous human on earth, the one specimen he and I both agreed upon as fulfilling that role as a type of all the rest. If Job would renounce God, it would prove there was no hope for the rest of humanity. God might as well give up now. But he didn't. In Job's logic, the only possible cause for suffering was the sin of the individual or the wanton cruelty of God, and he, he knew he hadn't sinned. He had no understanding of the spiritual world, no reason to think that a third option even existed. Even so, even as he railed against God, he did not ultimately renounce his love for him. I had lost. All right, boys, I muttered, looking at each of my demonic generals. That was just a battle, not the war. On to round four. So I hope that helped it come to life for you. Thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next week. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help, guide, and speak to us through prayer. I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical teaching and encouragement on how you can make prayer a natural and consistent part of your everyday life. I promise it won't require hiking a mountain, but you just might develop the faith to move one. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.